Good morning. One of the reasons why the letter to the Hebrews is valuable is that it allows us to look at the Old Testament through New Testament eyes. And it helps us to understand what from the Old Testament is relevant on this side of the cross. Not all that we find on the front side of the cross is relevant on this side. And that's where the letter of Hebrews really helps us. It talks about some of the rituals and rites of Judaism, helps us to understand them a little bit, but not only does it describe them, it talks about how concerned we should be on this side of the cross to practice and observe some of the things we find on that side. One of the threads that unites both the Old and New Testament of the Bible has to do with what God requires of us. And we find a similar thread that runs from old through new. And it's the role of faith and love in the Christian life. In the New Testament, it says the only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. So again, the Old and the New Testament have similar what's. They answer the what question the same way. What does God want from us? He wants us to put our faith in his promises, and he would have us express or evidence that faith in love. That's faith expressing itself through love. And while the New and Old Testament have the same what's, they have very different how's. I think you'd agree with me. It's important to be clear about how, if we know what God requires of us, but not how we can make it happen. If we know what God requires of us, but not how to make that happen. Our ability to express faith through love is limited. I mean, if we have a good what and no how, that's not much help, is it? Um, we default to self-control and willpower. That's our natural default how. How are we supposed to do what God wants? Well, we have to want to do it, and we have to try hard to do it. The problem is that willpower and self-control can allow us to do some things, but it can't allow us to love the way God wants us to love. God's love, the love that he asks of us, is deep and wide. We can pull off in willpower narrow, shallow love. We can love some people to a certain degree, but the love that God requires of us are Broad, it's, he requires us to love a breadth of people to a very deep degree, and we can't just pull that off with willpower. Um, and with that, let's look at this section, the last part of chapter 9, and we'll work our way through a long passage, and we'll think, I think what we'll find, there's a lot of detail here, but what we're going to find, I believe, is a simplicity on the far side of complexity. Let's start in. Uh, it's, it talks about in verse 6, the preparations that were made for the temple in Jerusalem, which was a series of courtyards within courtyards. When I was in China, 
I go to go to the Forbidden City in Beijing, and it's kind of like the same thing. You walk into a courtyard, and then you walk through a gate into another courtyard, and through a gate into another courtyard. And and in Beijing, when you look at the parapets. In the entrances to these different courtyards, you notice there are figures on the parapets. And what I learned from listening to Charlton Heston, he was talking through the Charlton who? I know. <laughs> See, that's, yeah, holy smokes. Let's not go there. Anyways, so he, you could hear him talk about what those figures mean and the more, the deeper you went inside the more exclusive and restricted it was. And so the temple in Jerusalem was the same way. Um, so it talks about in this verse, these preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties. But into the second, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year, and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself, and for the unintentional sins of the people. It's describing courtyards within courtyards within courtyards. Each courtyard is more restrictive than the previous one. The outside courtyard, the first courtyard you get to, everybody can get in there, Gentiles included. But then then from that one, going into the second one, Gentiles are excluded. And going into the third one, women are excluded. And into the fourth one, certain men are excluded. And certain priests, and then you get to the very center of the place. It's the most holy place. That's where God is said to reveal himself. And only one person can get in there, the high priest, and only once a year. Why did God create a system like this? Why create a system where all but one person is excluded and restricted from his presence? What conclusions are we to draw? you would conclude that God really doesn't like company. I mean, if, if all but one person has no chance to see him, I mean, that would be a conclusion that we would draw. But what the writer does, he, he, he paints a different picture. Look what it says in verse 8. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. It says the temple in Jerusalem did two things. It's two things to us. It's an object lesson and kind of an illustration or a parable. It's an object lesson, and the object lesson it says, by this the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the most holy, into the holy places is not yet open as long as the first section is still standing. Why can only one person get in once a year? Because God doesn't like company? No, that's not what it says. Because the way into God's presence had not been opened yet. Okay. So it's not that you had to squeeze through one opening once a year and not without blood. That would make the access restricted access. But what the writer says, it's not about restricted access. It's about undisclosed access. If you went to a building 
and it wasn't opened yet, you might find a way in. You'd have to sneak in. But that didn't mean that the way into the building was restricted. It means it wasn't open. And so in a sense, then, that's what it says. The way into God's presence, he didn't open the door yet. That's why only one person gets in once a year. It's not only an object lesson. It's, it's, there's something even deeper. It's like an illustration or a symbol of something deeper, not just about the temple and not just about God, but about religion and faith under the old covenant. Here's what it says, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. You know what it's saying? That the rites and rituals of ancient Judaism under the old covenant were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They weren't able to provide a satisfying sense of, oh, I'm connected to God. It, it provided a troubled sense of, well, I did the right things and I did everything that I was supposed to do and I wish I felt closer to God and I wish I felt nearer to Him, but I don't feel nearer and I don't feel closer. In fact, when I think about Him, I don't think about His connection with me. I think of all the things that I've done wrong. I did this and I did that. It wasn't able to perfect the conscience of the worshiper. Priests came in and there were two rooms. There was a big building, not a big building, actually, it was pretty small, that had in the very center, the very center courtyard, if you go through all these ones, there was a building that was divided inside, and all the priests could go into the first room, but then there was a, they say there was a veil about this thick, three to five inches, pretty thick veil, and that veil, you couldn't Get you couldn't go through that. Only the high priest could could go through that thing. And the well, the fact is, so you imagine yourself being either a priest or a high priest. Okay, just imagine yourself. And there's a lampstand, and there are candles, and there are this and that. And priests go and and they tend to these things and tend to those things, and they're cleaning this and they're arranging that. And wouldn't you imagine? God's on the other side of the veil. That's where he's supposed to reveal himself. And so you certainly would want to go out saying, yeah, yeah, (laughs) this close to him. And uh, boy, do I feel wonderful. And the fact is, they didn't. Imagine that. Being this close to God. And you walk out feeling not much better than when you walked in. And that's the problem. And this is what this arrangement, it's an illustration or a parable telling us that the rites and rituals prescribed in the Old Testament were not able to cleanse the conscience of the worshiper. They left you with an unsatisfying sense of distance uh, it's, what's the problem? We think, you know, when we think about a guilty conscience, well, that's kind of a good thing, isn't it? 
I, I mean, if we don't feel bad about things, we don't change, do we? Is a guilty conscience a good thing? Yeah, I see some, yeah, yeah, maybe, but yeah, yeah. We assume that it is. We assume that a clear, a, a guilty conscience is a godsend. Curiously, what it's going to say here, a guilty conscience isn't a godsend, a clean one is. A pure conscience is a godsend. That's what God sends, a guilty conscience is not. Look what it says in verse 11. When Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not the holy places in Jerusalem, but the holy places in heaven, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Jesus came then to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. He came to allow us to have pure consciences. And this could mean two things, but in the context, there are dead works can mean two things. What do you think of when you think of works that lead to death? I think most of us, and we run across this, would think of bad things, immoral things that you do. He, so we would imagine that what Jesus came to do is to purify our conscience from the memory of bad things that we have done, and certainly that Jesus comes to do that. But that's not what this verse is saying here. The dead works that Jesus comes to cleanse our conscience from are the works, the rites and rituals of ancient Judaism. What it's describing, if you grew up in ancient Israel, and you learned what worship means. Worship means you go to the temple, you go into the first courtyard, and then into the second, and into the third if you can, and you, and you bring the animals, and you learn to do that. Everyone, since you were a little kid, you went to the temple with your folks, and you went there, and they had the sacrificed lamb, and you brought that. And so you, you brought that, and the priest would take it, and then he would kill it, and you'd step back, and he would do that. And, and you were told, by do so doing, that's the way you get forgiveness. And so that's the way you grow up, year after year after year after year. And then Jesus comes along. And what Jesus says, you don't do that anymore. I am replacing the old covenant with a new one. So all those things that you used to do in order to try to draw close to God, I don't want you to do them anymore. Okay. But I've done those things all my life. And you mean I'm not supposed to go to the synagogue on the Sabbath? And I'm not supposed to do all those things. I feel kind of good, but I feel, can we be honest? 
I feel kind of guilty not going because there's a lot of people who still go there. And even though I believe in Jesus and I know that it's through faith in Jesus that I am accepted, but still I feel kind of wrong not doing all the things that I used to do. Did anybody understand that? I get that. I, I grew up believing that I needed to confess my sins to another person, to a priest. And there was something I liked about that. It was, and I did. I have good memories about that. I'd ride my bike to church and confess my sins to the priest, and I'd ride back and I felt clean. And then when I came to understand biblically that I really didn't need, now some people do, that's fine. I'm not blowing that up. But I came to see that I I didn't need to do that. And then I said to myself, okay, I guess if I don't, if I'm forgiven, I don't need to confess my sins to a priest anymore. And, but it was, I missed it. I missed it in a way, but I, but I felt I don't think it's what I need to do anymore. And it's, and it took a long time. That's what ends up happening. You grow up with behaviors and beliefs. And when I didn't, I used to go Saturday afternoon at five o'clock. That was my time. Ride my bike, get there at five o'clock. And, and then when I stopped going, it would be Saturday at five. And I was sitting at home or doing something and I'd think, oh man, maybe I, geez, I, maybe, I, maybe, oh boy, I wonder if I'm really missing it. Everybody understand that? Understand what it's like? And so what Jesus comes to do is there's things that were prescribed in the Old Testament. And what Jesus comes to do to purify people's consciences so that even though you didn't do those things, he would provide a sense of, no, you're fine. You're fine. You don't have to kill bulls and goats. You don't have to slit the throats of sacrifices. I don't require it. I know, and speaking to Jews, I know it's something you've done. That's Jesus come to purify their consciences from dead works because the fact is, those sacrifices were not able to provide a sense of connection to God. They didn't work. It wasn't the how. It wasn't the how. And Jesus puts a different how into place. Um, I went to the car wash. I don't know what happened. I went to the car wash. My car was a mess. You drive up and down this road, (laughs) your car just gets just messy, which is a really good reason to be able to get one of the coupon books. Because they have all kinds of car wash things, and so I use them all the time. Um, in fact, I took one. I need to pay you for it. <laughs> I, yeah, no, I don't feel guilty. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> Anyways, I went there. So I, I pulled into the uh, the wash, and then I pulled in, and it was fine. Punched in the code, drove in, and then it it put all the soap on it, and then the soap, 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 and then that's it. Just put soap on it. And I'm and I'm sitting there thinking there's something wrong here. This should be you know the you know the other thing come. You've done the car wash thing, right? You know this spray thing's supposed to come and it's supposed to blop on the multicolored waxy stuff if you get the good wash. And so it's not blopping on. And all of a sudden I hear the vacuum thing. 
but wait a minute. You know, you haven't cleaned my car yet. And so naturally, so I did. I had to drive forward and it's, and it sucked some of the suds off, but it didn't clean the car. So I had to go to the, I had to go to the, the guy down the street and I say, it didn't wash my car. And he gave me another one. And so that's kind of the way it felt like in the temple. And the way it can feel like in church, you go in and you come out, but you just don't feel clean. You don't feel clean. You had some stuff applied, but you didn't come out, and that's what Jesus comes to do. Um, an unclean conscience is actually something. Well, look what it says. It's on the back side. It's Colossians 1. It's what it says. An unclean conscience causes us to feel like God's enemies, and he doesn't want that. Look what it says. Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. I want you to look at that line. It says you were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. If you are God's enemy in your mind... Will that impact your relationship with him? Even if he is okay with you, if you don't feel okay with him, are you going to come close to him? Are you going to worship him? No, if your enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior. What it goes on to say, but now he has reconciled you. To reconcile is to change a relationship of enmity and hostility to one of peace and goodwill. So what God's purpose in sending Jesus is to give you the sense that God's not your enemy. He's not your enemy. I don't think he ever was, but he is trying to convince us you're not his enemy. He does not dislike you. Once that settles in your mind, you know what it starts to do? You start to want to approach him. You start to want to relate to him and speak freely with him. You start to want to express your faith through love. That's the how. This is the how. God doesn't stimulate faith and love through giving you a guilty conscience. He stimulates faith and love by taking a guilty conscience, by giving you the sense that you're going to be connected to him a hundred years from now. That's what he does. It goes on, it says, but now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith, established and firm, not moved from the hope held out into the gospel. So what it says is, if you continue to believe what he says, you can go to places and hear that you're his enemy. You know what I'd say? Don't go to those places anymore. If it's what you hear on the radio, don't listen to it. I don't think it's what he's saying, and that's what it says. If you continue to put your faith in what he says, to go to places where you hear he's not your enemy, that might seem dangerous because you say, Mike, what am I, how am I going to obey him if I'm not made to feel guilty? You understand, it's not the sense of guilt that makes you express faith and love. It's the washing away of it. 
And it takes a while. It, it's not something that happens magically. But this is the way God does things. This is the how. Um, it goes on, and it talks about, in verse 15, to go on, look at what it says. Therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since the death has occurred that redeems us from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. We talk about this and it, because the, the Bible talks about it. Jesus' death uproots us out of the old covenant. This is what his death does. This is the simplicity on the far side of complexity. Jesus' death is supposed to do this. It's supposed to uproot our faith from the old covenant and root it in the new covenant. The old covenant and the new covenant are different things. He forgives our sins, forgives transgressions committed under the first, places us into the new covenant, and in the new covenant, he is Helios, is merciful to your unrighteousnesses and remembers your sins no more. Jesus comes to forgive sins committed under the first covenant, and the new covenant says sins aren't taken into consideration. They're forgotten. Is that suggesting that sins, when you do things wrong, they cannot disconnect you from God? Is that what that's saying? If Sins committed under the first covenant are forgiven. That's what Jesus comes to do. So commandment violations not only no, no longer stand in the way. I think that's what it means. Commandment violations no longer get in the way between you and God. Jesus comes to die so that they're forgiven. And in the new covenant, he is Helios, forgiving to your unrighteousnesses and remembers your sins no more. Is that indicating that your sins do not separate you from God? Does it mean that? What would happen if you believed that? I, would you agree? It's hard to believe, isn't it? It's the truth. It's what he wants us to understand. And as we get that in our mind, you'd think, oh, Mike, if I believed that, I would do more lousy things. You know what the funny thing is? That's not the way it works. It really isn't. You know what you end up doing? Get this. You end up being more honest with God. You end up wanting to know him. Faith begins to allow you to be gentler with yourself and with others. And gentleness leads to love. Faith expressing itself through love. That's what he comes to do. Um, it says in Colossians 2, it's on the reverse side. When you were dead in your sins... And in the uncircumcision of your sinful nature, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins. Right? Is, is, that, is that unclear? How many of your sins did he forgive? All. Well, that can't mean sins you haven't committed yet. All means all. Forgave all of them. 
He forgives all of them. I want you to let that sit. All of them. Even that sin. The one sin some of you are thinking about, well, he can't mean. Yes, he does mean that. Yes, he does. Forgives us all our sins. Um, having canceled the written code with his regulations that was against us, that stood opposed to us. He took it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. Listen to what it says. Therefore, do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink, or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. These are the shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. You know what he's telling them at this time? These individuals who, they're not doing the things that the old covenant prescribed that they do. And people that imagine that you're Jewish and you're Jewish Christians. And then you are then working on the Sabbath. Maybe you decide to wash clothes on the Sabbath, which is absolutely forbidden under the Old Testament. Somebody might come to you and say, who in the world do you think you are washing your clothes on the Sabbath? You know what it's saying? Don't let that person judge you. Don't let them judge you. Listen to them, but, you know, we talk about what you might say. Don't do this, but just think it in your mind. Eh, off by a covenant. <laughs> Don't walk. Eh, off by a covenant. That doesn't apply anymore. Jesus died so that we would be uprooted from the old covenant and placed in the new. So I can't let you judge me. If I mow my grass on Sunday and you come by and say, well, what kind of pastor are you? And again, I'm not supposed to blow you up, but in my mind, I'm supposed to think doesn't apply. You might be angry at me for mowing my lawn on Sunday. But he isn't. He isn't. So if any of you want to come over and mow my grass and sit down, just kidding, just kidding. Uh, uh, we have to develop a good no. It says in verse 16, for where a will is involved, the death of the one who made it must be established. For a will takes effect only at death since it is not in force as long as the one who made it is alive. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet, wool and hyssop, and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. And in the same way he sprinkled all the, with the blood, both the tent and all the vessels used in worship, Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. The new covenant is not like the old covenant. The old covenant is like a contract. It's like a contract. And in a contract, a contract stipulates the binding provisions on both parties. So if I make a contract with you, what I say, this is what I'll do, 
And this is what you'll do. That's one kind of covenant. There's another kind of covenant. We think of it more as a last will and testament. So if I then have a last will and testament, which I will draw up while I'm alive, and if I name you as one of the beneficiaries in my, which will not be a really big thing if I did that, <laughs> I'm sorry to say. Anyways, but I do have a lawnmower, and I just, 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 just and, but, so, the deal is then, that's the kind of covenant, but do you have any, sti- and I guess there can be some stipulations, but in most last will and testaments, if I just write you into the covenant, I write you into the, you're gonna get an inheritance. And, and if I name you, uh, anybody, any of you ever been, don't put your hands up, but just think, have you, have you, any of you ever been surprised at being included in an inheritance? Maybe dearly departed Uncle Frank, that you didn't know that well. You didn't know if Uncle Frank had money, and maybe Uncle Frank included you in his will. And you were surprised. Uncle Frank died, and you were summoned to the office of the attorney. And, and when you do that, you might have questioned whether you deserve this or not. I don't deserve for Uncle Frank to give me this money. The fact that you deserve it or not, does that make any difference? Does it make any difference? No, he, made, he named you as, as a beneficiary. Jesus names you as a beneficiary. And he died. And his death now he rose again. And what this means, he named you in his will. And do you know what he wrote it in for? something more valuable than all the riches of the world combined. Eternal life with him in heaven. Written in. His blood is like the wax on a seal. On an unbound document. You know how that thing, that's what his blood is like. It's a proof that it's real. This is really a deal. And you might say, well, I'm, I don't deserve it. That's the way it is with an inheritance, isn't it? You don't deserve it. He writes it in. That's what the new covenant is like that. It's not a contract like the old covenant is. It's a last will and testament, and you've been named. Does that mean that everyone gets it? You have to put your faith in it. That's the deal. With God, we, well, how do you cash in on a, on a being part of a, a last will and testament? You have to go and you have to sign, right? To collect. You have to sign documents. Isn't that the way it works? I, I don't know how it works. <laughs> it tells you something. <laughs> but with this, how do you collect with God? It says, by grace you have been saved through faith. Uh, not of yourself. It's a gift of God, not a result of works. No one can boast. You know what we're supposed to do? We're supposed to hear the good news, and when we believe it, we collect it. That's the way you do it. You're supposed to believe it. That's why you're supposed to hear it. And you're supposed to hear, you're not under this old, you're under the new, and it's the last will and testament. And on this one, all you do is believe it. And if you believe it, do you believe it? You keep believing it, and you know what happens? You're named in it. And you're going to come to the end of your life, and you will be given the thing that he died to provide. Jesus includes us in his last will and testament. 
uh, our part is to learn to focus on the new covenant, not the old. This is the, this is the covenant that God is operating from now. Not this one, not the old, but the new. Here's what it says to finish up this text. Thus it was necessary for the copies of the heavenly things to be purified with these rites, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ has entered not into holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Nor was it to offer himself repeatedly as the high priest enters the holy places every year with blood not his own, for then he would have had to suffer repeatedly since the foundation of the world. But as it is, he, Jesus, has appeared once for all at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that becomes judgment, so Christ, having offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. Let me tell you those who are eagerly waiting for Jesus. If you believe that Jesus is going to come and say, let's see how you've honored the contract. I've given you things to do. Let's see your church attendance. Let's see your prayers. How much have you prayed? How much of the Bible do you know? How much have you given? Let's see the work record. Let's see it. If that's what he's going to do, then eagerly awaiting. But that's old covenant. And that's past it's not a contract like that anymore. Now it's a last will and testament. And the provision is, if you go in there, well, let me ask you a question. If God asks you, say, say you, you stand before God in heaven. You're standing there, you die, and you're standing before him. And he says, he won't say this, I don't think, but let's say it. Why should I let you in? Why should I let you in? Why should I let you in? Let me tell you what not to say. Well, because I go to church a lot, and because I gave a lot of money, and because I read the Bible every day, and because I, because I, because I, because I, because I, who am I trusting in for eternal existence? Me. That's not the way it works. That's not the way it works. You know what he's going to be looking for? Because you included me in your last will and testament, and Jesus came to die to offer it, and he's going to say, enter in. That's the way it works on this side of the cross. Let's sing a closing song. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for good news. And I'd ask that as we understand more deeply, little by little, in increments, what covenant you're, covenant you're operating by, that our belief will be more 
rooted and new and uprooted from old. This doesn't happen all of a sudden. We kind of put our roots down in both places, but progressively over the years as we remain in places where the new covenant is talked about, our root system goes a little bit deeper into the new, a little bit deeper into the new, a little bit less deep into the old, and we transfer our trust from what we do to what you've done. And as that happens, our conscience begins to change and our heart begins to soften and Love begins to bloom, deep love, wide love. Love that's born of confidence that we are loved eternally. And so, would you continue to do that work in us, that, that work of new covenant faith, in Jesus' name, amen.